So we've got tons of secrets to share and inf information documents posted. Um, and with Merchants of Poison, I wanted to look through, uh, trying to analyze and explain what do we know about how they run the playbook. So I'm going to get into that. But first, I um, now the report is specifically a case study about um, Monsanto and glyphosate. And I want to explain um, why we focused on those elements. And the reason really was because we had so much specific information about just that campaign. And just that campaign, one company running a campaign to protect one chemical um, is, is just immense. And of course, we know this happens. The same tactics, the same playbook is in play with all of the chemical companies that are now currently controlling our food system. So this is a, a little reminder about the, the corporations that control our food system. Since 2020, um, we've seen just amazing consolidation in the agrochemical industry. Um, to, so that by 2020, just four companies controlled most of the seeds and most of the pesticides um, for sale. So this is a breakdown of, of who owns what. So we see the leaders are Bayer, which now owns Monsanto, um, Corteva, which is a new name for Dow DuPont. And then we have ChemChina, Syngenta, and BASF. And uh, I want to just give a shout out to this report, Food Barons 2022 from the ETC group. I have a link here in this slide. And I will uh, share the slides later i'll have a link straight to the slides um and also if anyone wants any of my information you can contact me stacy s-t-a-c-y at usrtk.org and follow me on twitter at stacy malkin and i'll be sharing slides there and also give them to the conference okay so this report is very eye-opening in terms of um the shifting landscape of power in the food system and they talk about the crisis profiteering from COVID and how that played out, um, digitalization, and a lot of concerns about that, about who owns the data from farming system or who will own it, and shifting landscape of power, which is just this mad rush to consolidate. Lots of research also on how consolidation is bad for farmers, bad for consumers, bad for the food system, bad for the environment. Um, but nevertheless, it, it's happening at, at a fast clip. <laughs> and um, one thing that if you if you've looked at the pesticide industry at any length, one thing that would jump out at you about all these names, Syngenta, Bayer, Monsanto, Corteva, Dow DuPont, all of them, all of them have long histories of hiding the harm of their products. They have all participated in all of the strategies that I'm going to talk about related to Monsanto and glyphosate. Um, and we could just name a few scandals, atrazine, uh, the Teflon chemical, PFAS, uh, Clopyrifos. These companies are just basically, in my view, they won their market by um, corruption. It's a consolidation of corruption. And I think this is a true story across many sectors of the economy that the companies that were willing to hide, hide their harm the most, pay their workers the least, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, you know, won the market and now are uh, exhibiting just uh, very concerning levels of control. Uh, in this case, over our food system. 
So, okay, these are the, the bad guys, but bad systems. Um, and then I also want to mention why glyphosate. So glyphosate is um, just a few graphs here about glyphosate that I think are pretty useful. It's the most widely used herbicide in the world. Um, the increase, especially in the United States, has been super dramatic, 3,000% since the 90s. And a large reason for that is genetically modified foods. So you can see here over on the right, the adoption of genetically engineered crops in the US. We have almost all of our US corn supply, almost all of our US soy supply is herbicide tolerant, and much of that is engineered to resist glyphosate. Um, you see on the bottom, although we hear lots of propaganda about how GMOs are have all sorts of wonderful traits, well, what we hear is they will someday have all sorts of wonderful traits. They currently are mostly used um, as part of the pesticide treadmill. They're herbicide tolerant. Some of them are also insect resistant, but the vast, vast majority of acreage is herbicide tolerant and sprayed with glyphosate. That has caused many problems. The glyphosate is no longer working as well. Um, and weeds have become resistant. And now companies like Bayer are suggesting um, multiple stacked traits, genetically engineered seeds. So those would be seeds that are engineered to tolerate the spraying of glyphosate uh, and other, a, a mix of other chemicals, 2,4-D dicamba um, are among them. So the treadmill is escalating. Um, Companies obviously have found a profit stream in this uh, and are reluctant to give that up. So although genetic engineering is changing and new uses are coming into play because it's getting much easier to do, and there were whole talks about this at the conference, so I won't get into it, but I'll say that uh, they have a very successful profit line here, the pesticide companies, and we'll see it continued because a lot of the proposed uses of new GMOs in the pipeline have to do with um, chemical tolerance, which is you know a, a good good for their profits and bad for unfortunately the soil and for the future of farming. I think we're also seeing just in the big picture about consolidation and why I think that ETC report is so important is the next phase of consolidation is now really the merging of the food system with big data. So with the Amazons and Googles and efforts to um, track all data on farms, uh, feed that into an AI system, and then sell that knowledge back to farmers along with products to go with it. So the same sorts of questions and concerns come up. Who, who owns that data? Who has that power? Um, and what is the accountability and transparency for that system? Okay, so merchants of poison. We dug through all the documents and we um, apologize if you can't see this, it might be a little bit too big, but you get the idea. We narrowed it down to five major tactics that uh, Monsanto was using to control the narrative about glyphosate. Now, how we came about this, um, I want to talk about the source materials that we used for this report. So part of it, I mentioned before that we started to file public records requests at US Right to Know. And so this was in 2015. We, over the years, 
have obtained many, many, many documents, thousands of pages of documents um, from corporations, from universities, from government sources um, that helped us kind of get under the covers at how they were running their uh, public relations. Also in 2015, um, people started to sue Monsanto. That was the year that the World Health Organization um, determined that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen. And that uh, launched off uh, many people who had that particular type of cancer that arises as the most strong correlation in the science, and that's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So uh, as of now, over 100,000 people, um, and these are farmers, groundskeepers, landscapers, everyday gardeners who used glyphosate Roundup in their homes, um, suing Monsanto, now Bayer, with claims that exposure to Roundup caused them to develop non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Probably heard some about these trials. There were some big uh, jury verdicts. Uh, in one case, a couple was awarded a $2 billion verdict, both a husband and wife who used Roundup in their yard for decades. Uh, both had non-Hodgkin lymphoma. That's incredibly rare. So we've reported a lot about the trials. Um, I won't say more about that, except for a very important aspect of the trials is that many, many, many more documents, tens of thousands of pages became public. And so that those two bodies of documents, U.S. Right to Know Research and the trials, went into this presentation of uh, five ways that companies are, um, and it wasn't just Monsanto. In many cases, it was all of the companies working together as a team, but it was led by Monsanto. And a lot of the documents I'll talk about were Monsanto documents. So we see here some of the ways they do it, really from the ground up, um, corrupting the science from the beginning. Um, so the record is really clear that for 40 years, Monsanto scientists um, manipulated the scientific record in lots of different ways using lots of different techniques, um, ghostwriting papers, handpicking scientists, um, choosing public relations narratives that they wanted to bolster, and then figuring out how to do scientific studies to produce that narrative. Um, strong arming, influencing regulatory agencies, and really putting forth shoddy science to influence regulatory agencies again and again. Also, co opting academia. Um, public universities, unfortunately, are a huge part of the pesticide industry's public relations game. They really count on academics because they know that the companies are not necessarily seen as trustworthy but white coat academics are. And so we found many examples of white coat, supposedly independent academics who were actually working directly with Monsanto, in some cases paid directly by them to do public relations and lobbying. We also have the mobilization of many, many third parties, astonishing array of third parties. So I'll tell some details about kind of how that works. Um, and who the key players are. And also this attack, attacking and tracking efforts. Um, 
if any of you all have spoken out against the pesticide industry, they probably know who you are and have tracked you at some point. Um, it, it emerged that uh, in France, there was a whistleblower at one of the PR firms that came forth with lists of 200 people that the pesticide industry was tracking closely with personal details. What was your influence level? What was your opinion? Um, the media described it as friends and foes of pesticides. So they're really keeping good track of the landscape of who says what so that they can deploy trolls or front groups or academics to argue with you and just keep the, the, the fights going. Um, the scientist attacks were also a really important piece of how they dealt with um, glyphosate and to some extent got away with it. But, but the unfortunate thing for Monsanto is many of this, much of this stuff came out in the press and really became quite widely known about how they manipulated the record on glyphosate. And then the final um, point here is how ways in which they weaponize the web and really dominate um, the searches that we see on Google. So there's your big picture. And I really love this quote from Gary Kasparov, because I think to me, it really says what is the most important thing to understand about corporate propaganda. The point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. So with a lot of these strategies, like this mobilizing third parties, the attacks on scientists, you're not having debates about the substance with these um, corporate PR efforts. It's instead efforts to shame, to silence, to discredit, to make noise, to confuse, to overwhelm. But that's how they won Proposition 37 in the end, just a blizzard of confusion that makes people say, forget it, I don't want any part of that. And so this blizzard of confusion um, intended to have people, have all of us back off this idea that we need to reclaim and radically change the food system in order to survive, in order to deal with climate change, in order to feed the world. So let's, with that, dive a little bit more into, I want to tell, in each of these areas, I want to tell, tell a story, a scandal from the documents. Um, I'll tell some overall points and then also just give you an example of flavor for how, how they do their activities. So in the first piece, corrupting science. Um, so as I said, this has gone on for a long time. It really was exposed, lots of press coverage about lots of different aspects of how they did it. Um, you know, ghostwriting, um, really having influence over scientific journals and what gets published. Um, people with conflicts of interest that weren't disclosed, sharing important meetings that then decided about glyphosate safety. Um, people straight up writing papers that Monsanto had framed and Monsanto scientists had uh, had a heavy hand in that, where that relationship was not disclosed to the public. One example, um, just to again, give you a flavor of it. So there, there you see Monsanto scientists talking in the emails amongst each other about 
vulnerabilities in the science, and they had quotes around them, but vulnerabilities in the science, meaning that here are some ways that glyphosate runs into trouble if you really study it um, closely, or some scientists think so. One of those areas is genotoxicity, which is toxic to the genes and evidence that glyphosate can set genes up to, to be more susceptible to cancer. So the scientists see there is vulnerability in this area for them, for the profit line of glyphosate. So they hire a scientist to study it and write a paper, go through the literature and what, is, what does he, he think? So the scientist comes back and says, uh, this is a concern. And here's all many more studies that you should conduct to truly understand it. So they take this report, they go back talking amongst themselves, and you see the scientists saying, we're not going to do those studies that he suggests. Um, can we convince him to rewrite this study, or should we go find another, another good scientist? In other words, a friendlier to Monsanto scientist. So they end up hiring another scientist and helping him to shape a report that makes this look like less of a concern. So this goes on with, you know, in various ways through decades. Um, and I think another really important piece, because their main line of defense for glyphosate and all the pesticides, EPA says it's safe. The European Union says it's safe. But those processes are um, extremely influenced by corporate viewpoints and, in, and corporate science. And there was recently a study uh, in Europe where uh, scientists at the University of Vienna had looked at the studies that were submitted by corporations to regulatory authorities in Europe and found that I think it was there were 53 studies and only two of them were using modern methods of scientific research. Um, they were just outdated. They were using old methods. They didn't even include the most reliable tests for detecting cancer. So really the picture that came out of all this was well articulated by one of the judges. Um, and this was in the U.S. court in San Francisco. Judge Chabria said that after looking at all the documents, strong evidence from which a jury could conclude that Monsanto does not particularly care whether its product is in fact giving people cancer, focusing instead on manipulating public opinion and undermining anyone who raises genuine and legitimate concern about the issue. So this is why we cannot trust and should not trust and can't leave it up to corporations to tell us what's safe or not about their products. And hard as this part is, but we need to find ways to reclaim the FDA, the EPA, and the government systems that are arbitrators for science and on what's safe for the public. Okay, now we're going to talk about co-opting academia. This is a big part of what Monsanto counted on. Um, the first, the very first thing that we um, did as an organization in 2015, our documents were became a New York Times front page story about how Monsanto and the other companies uh, relied on academics to fight the GMO labeling war. How academics that were on the payroll under the influence working directly with Monsanto were part of uh, a key part, the most important part 
of their public relations efforts to defend GMOs. Now, this, this screen here, I just want to show you the University of Florida donors. This is not online anymore, and it was at one time, and we captured the screens. Then they took all this information out of the public eye and, and hid it. It's very difficult to find out from many universities how much money they're getting from corporations. And um, this isn't... One of the key things that we say in the Merchants of Poison report is that the pesticide companies are not just following in the footsteps of big oil and big tobacco, but they helped write the playbook. And they've done it deliberately for decades, ever since they unleashed vicious attacks on Rachel Carson when she wrote Silent Spring. So the pesticide companies are well-honed, and I think in some ways more effective at this point than oil industry and tobacco industry propaganda campaigns. And that's because of the influence and buy-in they have from the universities. And the land-grant university system in the US was set up to study and research agriculture and food systems and was largely, uh, or used to be a lot more government funded as government funding has gone down and corporate funding has gone up. These schools are so dependent on corporate funding to the point where there's really a chill even on debate of dissenting viewpoints from what I've heard from students, from professors, from others who are in these academic institutions on topics like genetic engineering, on pesticides. It's just a full buy-in that this is the food system that we need to have. And behind that buy-in is a lot of corporate funding that is not always obvious. In the case of the University of Florida, we've got Syngenta as a gold. Let's see, diamond donor was 10 million or more, or gold donors were a million, um, and silver donors were 100,000 or more. So well more than $10 million from pesticide companies in just one year. And the University of Florida also uh, had, these are just some of the headlines that came out to show that like the, a lot of this has been in the press, um, and it does have a big impact when it is. So we've really tried to get our documents to mainstream reporters. And, um, and just as we can tell the story about the corporate influence in the background. So, um, yeah. We, so in the case of the University of Florida, and Florida actually has some of the strongest uh, sunshine or freedom of information laws. So it was uh, the first place that we got a lot of documents was from the University of Florida and from a professor named Kevin Fulta, who featured heavily in this New York Times front page articles about how academics were helping defeat GMO labeling. So we have lots of interesting stories and talk about them in the documents about how, about the back and forth between these professors. Um, but it was a really a well-coordinated system with academics, um, top, uh, executives from pesticide companies and uh, public relations firms looped in in a pretty constant loop of conversation about um, talking points, lobbying priorities, um, who to uh, attack, essentially, you know, lists of who the influencers are, who needed to be confronted, um, people like Vandana Shiva, uh, or the food babe, 
or Michael Pollan. Um, you know, these names all come up as uh, groups and people that needed to be confronted and um, and whose reach needed to be limited. And in, in some cases, they really uh, had some successes with that. So all of this, I think, is also leading up to a point of seeing, like, if it takes this much to keep the 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 the, the the manufacture of knowledge about food systems propped up. Uh, it's a system that is rotten. So I do take hope in kind of the extent to which they need to go to control the narrative that when we're able to tell the truth, to either shine light on what's happening or tell a different story, um, those stories have incredible power and therefore are seen as an incredible threat to this corporate system. Mm -hmm.